0: How do you mine for the gold in your compliance program to demonstrate ROI to increase your compliance budget? In this special five-part podcast series with Nick and Gio Gallo from Compliance Line, I explore this topic. We take a look at what is ROI, how to calculate it, and more importantly, how to present that information to CFOs and senior management to increase your compliance budgeting. Now a quick word from Nick Gallo about compliance lines.
1: For over 25 years, Compliance Line has provided a suite of corporate integrity products that help you manage risk and reinforce your healthy culture. From case management and COI software that really saves time, issue intake and e-learning focused on the human element, and sanction monitoring that actually works, we are committed to making the world a better workplace for everyone. We're currently offering a limited number of free ROI sessions that will help you make the business case for more budget so your program can be more effective. These custom sessions will give you the right talk, tracks, and confidence to get the money you need to elevate. Reach out to us at ComplianceLine.com today to schedule your free custom ROI session.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with the Brothers Gallo, Nick and Gio, continuing our five-part exploration. Today, we're going to take up extended value across the organization. So I thought, Nick, maybe I could start with you today. How might a finance professional or someone in the finance department view things differently from the compliance professional?
1: Well, glad to be here, Tom. Thanks for having us. I love this series And I think this is a phenomenal question because it really is kind of a mindset difference or like a lens difference. And I think it kind of all comes down to certainty. So if you think about the finance game, well, maybe you don't know, but in the finance game, people make massive bets, investing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars on acquisitions with no real certainty around how something's going to play out. You don't know if a market's going to go away. You don't know if the historical growth is going to repeat in the future. You don't know if your margin improvements are going to justify the massive purchase price you're paying. So layered in all these financial models that end up justifying the decision are a bunch of like nested assumptions about what the future is going to look like. And investment committee is really about pushing on those assumptions and saying, do we really feel good about how we assume things are going to play out? How much margin of error have we built into this investment? And it's like playing battleship to some degree. You're shooting this artillery shell. How close is that going to land to the target, which is some point in the future? And there's the winds and all those other factors that are going to influence it. So, getting comfortable with that level of uncertainty about predicting the future and making bets that are, again, foundationally built on this sort of deep foundation of assumptions is how those finance folks live their lives. Obviously, there's accountants in that field and there's investors in that field and all those kinds of things. But Even an accountant who's living in ones and zeros and debits and credits and so forth, they have to make assumptions and bets about how to depreciate something or what the useful life of something is and all those kinds of things. So inherent to this game of predicting the future is just a bunch of assumptions that we many times in the legal field or in the ethics and compliance field, we can't make assumptions. We have to have really dialed in perspectives on is this binary risk gonna have to happen or not, or have I sort of extinguished the likelihood of this risk occurring? So I think understanding that it's a bit of a different game, you know, maybe we're doing karate and we're talking to people who are judo players. It's a bit of a different game, but we're still wearing geese. You know what I'm saying? Like we're still communicating in the same types of words. So we can start to speak their language, I think, in a much more meaningful way to Gio's point from the last episode, not only communicate more clearly with them and more persuasively, but also on sort of a second order Communication level, start to position ourselves as somebody who, quote unquote, gets it. Not just somebody who's so concerned about being a hall monitor or something, but who can really be this force of unlocking magic in the workplace or ultimately reinforcing the bottom line with the programs that we're arbiters of.
2: Yeah. And Tom, I think that when you get into that, right, and you realize we're just doing some martial arts and wearing geese, it's not that far from what we're doing, but what finance and The board and stuff are looking at are not that different from what we're doing, but there is this element where I think sometimes we miss it. There, where the people we're talking to are a lot of times looking for gain, right? Things can get better by having less bad stuff, fewer expenses, fewer risk of fines, and things like that, or things can get better by growth and improvement, right? And that is not just getting more revenue, but that is becoming more efficient, that is attracting better talent, that is better innovation, and all of those things. And I think when we realize that a lot of people in finance are looking at both sides that ledger all the time right if someone's looking at an acquisition they say we can do this 100 million dollar acquisition and it's going to help us grow this much or we could do this 20 million dollar acquisition and you know we're kind of more sure about it it's less risk but maybe less upside and i think finance pros are used to kind of jumping to both sides of that kind of gain and loss or revenue slash growth versus expense jumping back and forth to that all the time i think if you understand that change in frame, as a compliance and ethics professional, you maybe realize that we are kind of trained to kind of look at the downside, right? Look at how much this is gonna cost, look at what the risk might be, what is the threat to us as a going concern? Because a lot of times we're the goalies, we're the midnight watch, making sure that nothing massively terrible happens to the organization. And we may think that marketing is the one that might tweak our ads a little bit to get us another 0.2% of growth or something. But really, what I believe and what I think that people who engage in this conversation about finance and financing the budget for compliance and ethics, they understand that compliance is really a huge driver of positive outcomes for the business. We're not just here to say no to things. We're not just here to tell people they can't do something. We're not just here to tell everyone, hey, you know what, put on your elbow pads if you're walking down the uh, sidewalk because you might get hurt. When we do things right, we have a positive impact on the culture of a business, right? Compliance is culture. We have a positive impact on our ability to attract and retain talent, to get people bought into understanding that capital M management, the leaders of the company care about them. And when we insert those types of discussions around, hey, we're not just here to defend against bad things happening, we're here to make sure that we have a strong ethical culture that allows good things to happen within the organization. I think you can talk across the table a little bit and have that. Benefit versus risk conversation instead of just a risk conversation. I don't think Tom that it's that far from how we think about things. I think we just have to get better at expressing it and saying, Hey, you know what? If we run this program well, I'm not just going to minimize our fines, which you could solve by hiring a lawyer or getting insurance or something. I'm contributing to the forward positive momentum of this organization, which I think you'll find that someone in finance or A financially minded board member or CEO is going to want to see both sides of those and balance them rather than just say, hey, am I good? You know, am I not going to skin my elbow while we do this?
1: And it's really about being opportunistic. Like if you're in the finance game or you're a CEO or you're an investor, you're opportunistically looking at this risk landscape for things that other people haven't seen before. So we have particular insights that they don't have. And there are probably connection points that they haven't made as they're at this really high level overlooking this entire organization that we can start start to point out that they can start to see us as an untapped gem or an untapped resource or an uncut gem in the organization. Once those light bulbs start to turn on, you can have some really powerful outcomes that you never thought would happen. We have a friend who, somebody that we become friends with, at one of the world's most ethical companies that we did one of these ROI sessions with. And in the session, you know, they gave us a bunch of their data. They came in like, ah, I don't really know what to do about this. We're in a kind of a hiring freeze. We spent like 90 minutes going through this whole program with them and getting some talk tracks and working on the numbers and how we could frame them and so forth. Long story short, we just heard over the last couple of weeks that in the face of this hiring freeze, they ended up getting all the budget they want. And this is somebody at one of the world's most ethical companies who I kind of thought they had a blank check and come to find out they're just like every other ethics and compliance department in spite of that award that they won, they're swimming upstream as well. So they were able to reframe their work. They were able to point a line between an indirect line from the investments they needed to some outcomes that really resonated with those folks at the top and they got everything they wanted. So It's not only possible, it's actually pretty easy because you can actually shatter some of these stereotypes that they may have about you or your predecessors who have sat in your seat before by saying things a little bit differently and pointing to the impacts that they might care about more readily than staying out of trouble or wherever their eyes have been historically.
0: So let me uh, see if I could move to a little bit higher level articulation. And I certainly understand one plus one can't equal two. I get a little fuzzy, though, if I start thinking that one plus one may equal eight or it may equal 16. So mm-hmm. I was wondering if you guys could maybe go into the finance weeds a little bit and help the compliance professional understand both a compounding interest component to a compliance program, but more importantly, a compounding return. How can you validate that or even show that to senior management?
2: Yeah, that's awesome, Tom. It's so important. This has been talked about as the eighth or ninth wonder of the world, right? This thing of compounding interest can really transform what, how things happen in your life. And on a personal level, you can say, all right, I'm going to put 2% of my paycheck each year into my 401k, and I'm going to be a millionaire in 20, or 30 years or whatever it is. But there's this thing that in our minds, we generally think about things linearly. We think one plus one is two, and then plus one is three, and it's going to keep going on like that. Well, when you're multiplying by interest, when you have a complex system where all these different things are interacting, well, if that's actually 10% better each year, well, in four years, it's not just 40% better, right? 10, 10% times four, you might be 60 or 80% better, however, if you can do that arithmetic in your head. But there's this story about there was this, this vizier 2,000 years ago, went to a king and did a great job. And the king said, hey, name your price. And he said, all right, let's adjust for inflation. He said, all right, I'll either take a million dollars or give me rice in this framework, get a chessboard and put one piece of rice on the first square and then two on the second one, and then double it again, four on the third one, and then double it again, eight on the fourth one. And just give me the rice that's going to fill up the board and keep doubling it, right? That's 64 times, or just give me a million dollars. And king as you know kings tend to be in these types of fables, said you know that seems like not that much rice i guess i know why you're not running the show here so yeah i'll do the rice thing and when you do two to the 64th power it becomes something like billions of dollars right it's like instead of a million it was like 200 billion dollars so that just illustrates that like You think, okay, two, four, eight, just keep doubling that. By the time it gets to 64, it's probably not going to be a million. It's actually thousands of millions. And that just speaks to this mindset that I think finance people are more likely to kind of have worked with a bunch of times of like, if we make a bunch of these small improvements, these are going to add up to a bunch of big improvements. And it may take a little bit more time, or we may kind of be bumpy along the way. But the nature of it is we're not just making one investment we're investing this this year, and then we're investing a different amount next year and a different amount after that. And if you can start doing some things that make your compliance program 1% better each week, well, then you're going to be 50% better. You're going to be one and a half times as good a year from now. And if you can be 1% better a day, you're going to have more than three times as much employee engagement. And that compounding interest is something that if you can A a good way to represent this is to show this over a number of years, right? And say, hey, I don't just need an extra 30 grand for this program next year. I'm going to ask that on a recurring basis. But look, this is going to make us 10% better this year, and then 10% better than that next year, and then 10% better than that. And say, hey, let's start investing now. And here's the total return that you're going to get over three to five years. That starts to become a much more compelling conversation, both due to the persuasion of showing someone a number that's 140% better instead of 110% better and also just showing that so much of what we do in compliance is not isolated to a single thing. When you train a manager, that does not just stay in that manager's head. That manager interacts with people, reinforces culture to the people around them, may train up someone who becomes a manager later. There are all these follow-on effects. That's compounding interest. This idea that we handled an issue that came into our hotline well. So that person has confidence and they tell some other people that it's going to be good. So now there are five people who have confidence in our program and then two of them report, and then they tell five more people. You have this opportunity for compounding interest, where if we just say, Hey, I need some more money. I think we're going to get 10 more reports this year. It's probably not that compelling, but you're also selling yourself short because you're not drawing that line through the whole story to say, as this compounds over the next three and five years, this is going to well beat our 15% or 3x roi target it's going to blow it out of the water because there are so many ways that what we do in compliance touches the whole organization and those things compound naturally
1: yeah compounding the return of ethics and compliance ties down to having the mindset that that doubling of those rice those pieces of rice on each square is going to have this irreplicable impact on the organization, and I think that's really the exciting story to tell to the board or to whoever owns that purse that you're trying to get loosened up. If you make these little changes, these 1% changes per year that translate into 40 times impact over a 12-month period, if you make these little changes over time and it's authentic, then the cultural difference in your organization relative to your competitors very quickly is going to separate in a nonlinear way. It's going to separate in a logarithmic way two, three, four years down the road, that's where the real impact of the changes that we can make and the impact that we can have can really be compelling.
0: Gentlemen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us tomorrow where we try to apply some of these concepts and topics to one of the most ubiquitous phrases of 2021 ESG. I greatly look forward to continuing this conversation.
2: Likewise, time We'll see you then. Catch you on the next episode.
0: This is Tom Fox again. We've linked to Compliance Line in the show notes, and I hope you will take up their free offer on how you can mine the gold in your compliance program. I hope you will join us tomorrow for our next episode where we take up the issue of compliance and ESG investments. This podcast series, Gold in the Compliance Hills, is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network.